Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. And this week, my guest is Eric Kaufman, a fellow Canadian who, for the last two decades, has built an impressive academic career in England, specifically at Birkbeck College, University of London, where he's become a well-known specialist on the subject of how societies respond to the ethnic and religious diversity that result from high-volume immigration. And Kaufman himself represents a sort of microcosm of the sweeping demographic changes that Western societies have undergone over the last century. He was born in Hong Kong, but raised in Vancouver and Japan, and counts his ancestry as half Jewish, a quarter Chinese, and a quarter Costa Rican. In terms of his politics, Kaufman is one of those politically homeless, classically liberal figures that often appear on this podcast. Like me, he's perfectly comfortable with the welfare state, the environmental movement, and most other traditional progressive policies. But he's also spoken out against the illiberal tendencies of modern wokeness, if we're still allowed to use that term. Spoiler alert, that's something we discuss. And because his research deals head-on with some of the negative political effects that result from rapid ethno-religious changes, he's come under fire from some academic colleagues who would prefer that this kind of research be treated as a no-go zone, on the grounds that it's, if not racist, then racist-adjacent. Earlier this year, Kaufman decided that he'd had enough of navigating this kind of criticism. And in early October, he announced that he'd be leaving University of London to start up a new research institute called the Centre for Heterodox Social Science at University of Buckingham. Earlier this week, I spoke to Eric Kaufman over Zoom about his new career move and many other things besides. Here's a recording of our conversation. Am I remembering this right that I took you out to breakfast on College Street in Toronto a couple of years ago. That's right. I think that your your daughter or had a, had a hockey practice in Maple Leaf Gardens or something right. of that nature. It was right yeah, by yeah. the gardens. Yeah, it's what used to be Maple Leaf Gardens and is now the hockey rink for what used to be called Ryerson University, but now, <laughs> but now it's called. Toronto Metropolitan University, because it turns out that, what was his name? Egerton Ryerson. Yeah, I was going to say Egbert. It's not Egbert. It's Yeah, Egerton Ryerson. There was this ginned up historical case against him and he got cancelled. And so I took you to some 24-hour pancake restaurant. That was, I think that's the only time I've ever met you. I think you're right. And that was, it feels like five or six years ago, which might as well have been like 50 years ago in terms of journalistic time. Could you talk a little bit about your political vector since that, that fateful meeting? <laughs> my sense is my politics have always been fairly steady, fairly stable. Broadly, I'm a kind of liberal conservative and, and like sort of classical procedural liberal mixed with some strands of conservatism, although not, not the religious version. Even there are some positions where I might be even somewhat on the left, perhaps on, on environment or, or some of these, uh, some issues. I'm, I'm fine with the welfare state. And so, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sort of a mix, but I, I su- suspect that on the issues around cancel culture and uh, the social justice movement, I'm, I've always been fairly opposed to what I see as, as excesses. And I, and I guess I see those excesses, not just in the from the mid-2010s onward, but even going back to the earlier politically correct 
period and debates in the late 80s, early 90s, when I kind of politically came of age, I, I think I was already pretty opposed to that. We're having this conversation in mid-October, and I'm looking at an article that appeared in the National Post, Canadian newspaper, October 2nd, and the headline says, Canadian professor starts common sense course on wokeness after being cancelled in UK. That's not quite right, is it? Like, to my understanding, you weren't cancelled, you just kind of got sick of things? Yeah, I think that's right. I think there is cancel pressure and there's being cancelled, and we can kind of have a debate over what what counts before you can be called cancelled. So was I forced out by my university? No. My university, particularly upper leadership management layers, was reasonable. You know, I don't have a real, real issue there. Uh, however, there were numerous attempts by radical students and staff and some of their allies on Twitter to to get me removed. And so they had a number of uh, Twitter campaigns. They had an open, there was an open letter. There were people calling into the department complaining about me. And then there were a couple of, well, several internal investigations prompted by these complaints. So they did manage to keep up a sort of climate of pressure and keep you on edge. And of course, the thing about the the whole punishment process is you get that email it shows up in the morning and it says, you know, be here at this time. You have, you know, been accused of breaching this such and such a policy penalty unspecified. And, and it, it does definitely induce a sense of anxiety because you don't know where this is going to go. Uh, you, you, you know, being fired is always somewhere in the back of your mind, even though that legally that's very difficult, but still you don't necessarily know that. So yeah, it's a very effective technique for silencing people that radicals may not like. And so yeah, that was sort of the pressure from about 2018 to 2022, thereabouts. But it wasn't enough to push me out. It wasn't like if Kathleen Stock got 10 out of 10, I might have got 6 out of 10. So it wasn't really the same. Um, And my colleagues were generally pretty good. um, And so there wasn't the problem with my immediate colleagues that I think Kathleen had. That was at uh, University of Sussex, I think. Yeah, she was at Sussex and I was at uh, University of London College called Birkbeck. And so it wasn't exactly the same. There was pressure. And then what happens is I'm sort of looking to go anyway, because I'm I'm feeling I got to watch what I say, what I teach, what I research a certain amount. I was particularly worried about the the research ethics process, because if you have opponents on the research ethics committee, they can essentially censor your research and block it or delay it. And, I, and that, to me, was a major risk that I was worried about. So I was kind of looking for potentially to move. And then the university had, it hit some financial troubles and had a redundancy program. And that was kind of the last straw and kind of yeah, led to me saying, okay, I think I'm going to go now. Because of this career move on your part, uh, there's been articles that have filled in some of the blanks, in, in my knowledge, about your background. Your dad spoke 20 languages. Is that right? Yeah, he's a, he's a sort of language learning entrepreneur. He's got a, a language learning website, linq.com. Yeah, he speaks 20 languages. He, he loves learning languages. Uh, when I was growing up, he spoke about nine, but I think he's up to 20 now and he's learning all kinds, Turkish, Persian, all, all kinds of languages. 
Did any of those stick with you? <laughs> Should we switch to Urdu or something? No, no, I, I really haven't picked up those skills. I mean, I've got a, a, some French, of course, and uh, maybe a very small amount of Japanese, which is largely atrophied. But um, I think that gene must have skipped a generation. You grew up in Vancouver. What drew you to England? England was very accidental. It was, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I had... Uh, just been to the UBC taking forestry. I was bouncing around working in Northern Alberta. That's University of British Columbia for non-Canadian listeners. And just so people know, much of, of British Columbia is is one giant, beautiful forest, which is great to extract logs from. So you're, you're saying you were going to be a lumberjack? <laughs> Not quite. Although my, my dad was in the forest industry, more in the sort of processing side of it and exporting to Japan, that kind of side of it. So yeah, I'm very familiar with the forest industry around British Columbia. That was kind of a, a bit of the context and also Northern Alberta. I actually lived in a town, probably a stone's throw from where Jordan Peterson is from. And then I went from there to London to do a master's degree. My dad had heard about London School of Economics. I'd never heard of it. And uh, I just thought I'll take a year, study something different in Europe from what I've studied. And then a year turned into over 25. Your area of study relates to demographics and the various political tribulations that can follow from large-scale demographic shifts brought about by immigration. This is a subject that even before cancel culture has been controversial for decades because I think people's antenna are up. They say, well, if they're talking about that, maybe you're somebody who wants to limit immigration and maybe you want to go back to these laws we used to have, including in Canada, that limited immigration from non-white countries. Did you face pushback earlier in your career when you were studying this kind of thing? There were a set of taboos that already existed prior to uh, the rise of the Great Awakening, for example. And I actually think those taboos are continuous to some degree with the taboos we've got now. And I think I would be more critical of the earlier phase than perhaps some other people would. So, for example, talking about ethnocultural change in a country, in my view, is not xenophobic or racist. For example, the United States in the 20th century, when it had immigration restriction on Southern and Eastern Europeans, for example, that was essentially focused on reducing the, the flow of migration from Southern and Eastern Europe. Um, that's something I wrote about, but I didn't write about it necessarily from a normative point of view. It was much more a question about you know, what was the politics like that led up to that. But I do think, you know, particularly when we're talking about the rise of national populism, it is essentially about cultural anxieties around immigration and ethnic change. My view is that is a legitimate subject for debate, and it is not the same as wanting an ethno-state, racial purity, excluding entire groups from your country, like the you mentioned some of these earlier laws, the Chinese Exclusion Act, for example. I actually think there is a legitimate conversation to be had about pace of change, slower versus faster, whereas I think the way this is, has been framed for a long time is in terms of you're either open, an open person or you're a closed person, and if you want it slower, you're a closed person, and therefore you're a bigot and a racist. Philosophically, I don't think that makes sense, partly because of the nature of the psychological research, which shows that really attachment to own group and hatred of out group are not similar dispositions. Attachment to the status quo and hatred of out group are not similar dispositions, except in very specific circumstances, such as violent conflict. And there's a tendency that we have to conflate these two things of wanting slower cultural change and wanting no change or wanting to turn the clock back. These are all squashed. 
together under one label. So my view is we need to be able to have those conversations or we're only going to let the populace take that issue. And I think that's the wrong way to proceed. So one of the interesting things about Canada, where I grew up, but unlike you, I stayed here because I love my country. <laughs> one, one of the interesting things about Canada is because our immigration laws favor wealthy people, entrepreneurs, well-educated people, Canada is kind of hypocritical. We have this reputation for being kind and gentle and a pushover when it comes to any kind of international issues. But our immigration criteria are ruthlessly meritocratic along economic lines. And so we tend to get a lot of high value immigrants. So it's the debate in Canada is very much unlike the United States, where you have conservative populists who sometimes engage in, in demagoguery and they present immigrants kind of in terms that nativists from 100 years ago would recognize as being criminals or unwashed and, and, and that kind of thing. Here in Toronto, I can say the main complaint is that a lot of the immigrants, especially those coming from China, are very wealthy. They're buying up properties. They're raising home prices. And in particular, the rental market say around University of Toronto, it's full of $2,500 a month apartments that the only people who seem to be able to afford them are people with family money or people who immigrated from other countries who are self-selected because they happen to have a lot of money. And I'm not even sure that this is a race-based issue. It, it seems to be about supply and demand, taking into account the empirical fact that a lot of the people who have money to buy properties and are raising the demand side of the curve happen to be from East Asia. Is this something you've studied? That's studied a lot in the literature. There's no question skill level of immigration matters to public opinion. There's no question illegal versus legal is, is an important distinction people make. Uh, and naturally, you know, the debate in the U.S. where it's, it's a question about legality is going to be very different from the one in Canada. I think the one in Canada has got some similarities to the debates in New Zealand and Australia, for example, where house prices are are definitely part of what people are talking about in the large metropolitan areas. But the scholarship on immigration opinion would suggest that personal economic circumstances are not the main driver of one's immigration opinion. Ideology, culture, and psychology are much more central. So they've done experiments where they'll say the U.S. is going to be minority white in 2050, and then they, you know, they talk about the demographics, and then they look at people's opinions on, say, free trade they'll become more restrictive. Or you can give a question to Trump's supporters like, urban sprawl, how big a problem do you think it is from zero to 100? You get a middling sort of 50 out of 100. If you just put words, immigrants leading to urban sprawl, then you get a 75 out of 100. But that does sound kind of racist. I think that jump is too quick. I would say that if people are attached to a particular ethnic composition that they knew growing up, that attachment too, I distinguish from hatred of. They're not the same for the most part. And there's been a, a quite a bit of research now. It actually shows that there's a very clear distinction between what political scientists would call racial resentment, which might be closer to racism, although even that has some issues with the measurement, and white identification, which is independent. Attachment to and hatred of are different. And I think we make a mistake if we conflate those and do not permit a conversation about pace of ethnic change. And I think in the even in the case of like a Canada, you know, you're right that the debate is framed around house prices and so on. But there's certainly disquiet that certain neighborhoods, for example, are becoming heavily concentrated in 
you know, Richmond being a heavily overwhelming Chinese area, Brampton, Ontario, you know, this on its own perhaps is not as an issue, but I think these concentrations and the social cohesion question is is an issue, but it's just not permissible to have public discussion about it, which I actually think is a mistake. Um, it doesn't mean these issues are going to go away. And and really, if you look at populism, national populism in the West, uh, and including the Trump phenomenon, this is, this is linked to this. There have been studies, for example, if you have a rapid ethnic change in a in a county uh, metropolitan area, then you tend to get a response. Those became Trump counties. Yeah. yeah. So the exurbs around major U.S. cities, for example, Trump did very well in those areas. That's just one example of this phenomenon. Although locality is not the main driver, it's perceptions of what's happening nationally. But I just think we we have to have space to have a conversation about change Instead of always saying this is a slippery slope to, you know, somebody going to turn the clock back and, and start tossing people out. Just think that's we wouldn't say that about raising taxes leading to communism. And I don't think we should be doing that on this issue either. My experience here in the Canadian context is the class based division here. So when I talk to a lot of my friends who, you know, like me, they've, they've been very lucky in life. They maybe they bought a house in Toronto at the right time and they love high immigration levels. When they, you know, need to make a medical appointment, most of the time their gastroenterologist is this elite medical professional who immigrated from India. All of the nurses who work at my local medical clinic happen to be from Philippines. Long-term care facilities are, are full of hardworking people who come from other countries. For that reason, most of the people I know who are privileged here in Toronto are big cheerleaders for immigration. But then you talk to people who maybe uh, are less fortunate in life or they work in, say, blue collar industries that have lower barriers to entry. Uh, one guy I remember I was talking to a few years back, he was a truck driver, and he was telling me he hated the fact that there were a lot of Sikh immigrants. So this is just empirically true. There's a lot of Sikhs in the trucking business. He says they're extremely hardworking. They and their families would drive their trucks 24 hours uh, if they could. And as a result, at least at this point, the Sikhs had taken over, or Sikh newcomers had taken over the trucking route between Montreal and Toronto. Five-hour drive, it's one of the most lucrative trucking routes in, in Canada. He was talking about an industry, trucking, which has very low barriers to entry. I remember I came away from that conversation thinking like, was that racism I just heard? Or was this just a guy who was frustrated that he can't make as much money in his profession because there's a lot of newcomers who are competing with him? Like, where does that fall on, on the line? I would not call that racism. I mean, racism has to involve some sense of hatred or superiority over another group or desire for race purity, for example, or to discriminate against a particular group. Uh, that's the meaning of the term. And this is simply, I think, an expression of, of loss. And in a way, people are wired differently psychologically. Some people see change as lost, differences disorderly. Others see it as interesting and stimulating. And that's actually largely psychological and is not actually that closely linked to income. I mean, this is a sort of narrative that has emerged that that it's about income and class, but class correlates to some extent with education level, which is a more important predictor. So people with advanced education are much more liberal than those with less than high school, for example. But even beyond that, it's sort of psychological makeup. Those who are wired to prefer difference and change, that is also correlated with higher education. And it's much more important than education or income or any of these economic things, which actually have very low predictive power in terms of immigration attitudes or populist voting. I would say a lot of the people who, you know, in a middle class setting might be saying they're pro-immigration might not be as pro-immigration as they say. 
there have been some experiments that show, like in the US, there was a paper that used what's called a list experiment. And only about 35% of people wanted immigration reduced a lot when asked directly. But in this list experiment where you're able to tease out people's true beliefs, it was 60%. It also depends on how acceptable it is in your social circle to express these views. And it may be more acceptable in a less educated milieu, but it doesn't necessarily mean those views aren't there even in the well-educated milieu. We'll get back to the Quillette podcast in a moment. But first, I wanted to remind you that these podcasts represent only a part of our Quillette offerings. Over at our website, quillette.com, you'll find loads of great essays and reviews, including, this week, outstanding new pieces by Shmuel Barr, Brian Stewart, and Jeffrey Herf about the recent Hamas terrorist attacks and Israel's military response in Gaza. At quillette.com, you can also find information about our upcoming live events, known as Quillette Socials, including our November 3rd meetup in London, England. As of now, that one is sold out, but if you're interested in joining the waitlist, please email us at members at quillette.com. And now back to the Quillette podcast. Sometimes I find people's attitude toward immigration is like their attitude toward artificial intelligence is like, well, has it affected my sector yet? You know, I know lots of people who are really excited about AI when it was, you know, mundane tasks like programming robots to clean your house. But once it was like, hey, we don't need your legal services anymore because we have this AI algorithm that could search case law and write up memos for us. So, uh, you know, good luck working at Starbucks. Then suddenly they're they're all up in arms about machine learning. There is something similar to that in immigration where, you know, if you're in the landscaping or construction business in a southern U.S. state, you have skin in the game in terms of the supply and demand, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I... But again, I would caution that the literature, and there's a large literature now on on immigration attitudes and populist voting, really doesn't show a great deal of connection between your own income, your own, whether you've lost a job or unemployed, and your views. Now, it could be very sector specific, but my view, again, having studied this area and a lot of other academics, is that the the socioeconomic class dimension per se is not the big driver of... I'm trying to introduce a Marxist class-based analysis for our conversation, (laughs) and you you just are shooting me down. (laughs) <laughs> well, these are big debates in the whole populism field. And 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 I, I, my sense is that the sort of more materialist analyses are not, at least in the quantitative side of things, they're not sort of seen as the leading contender. Let's talk a little bit about your, your career path now, because you're going to University of Buckingham. My understanding is it's not a new university, because I remember a couple of years ago, I think people who are going to start like the uh, University of Austin. The University of Austin, where I'm also an affiliate, but it, it, it's new. They have to start everything from scratch, from accreditation to buildings to admissions. To, and it takes a long time. Um, a mascot for their football team? Yeah, exactly. Owl or a phoenix or... <laughs> All the branded wear, yeah. Um, but no, Bucking was just, it's 3,000 students. It's small. It's been there since the late 70s. So it's it's certainly been around a long time. Is it like the Hillsdale College of England? Well, no, not <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that. No, no, you're right. But it was it was founded by Thatcher as you know, this is the one of the only private institutions in the UK, private universities in the UK. I mean, I guess over time it's just evolved to become 
a private university with, you know, 50% overseas students, and it's it doesn't have a particularly right-wing lean. It's got a left-wing lean and staff and student body like anywhere else. So it, it's not that distinctive necessarily in terms of, of its ideology. What I would say, a couple of things. One is it is a somewhat more ideologically diverse. It had the highest score for freedom of expression on the National Student Survey. That's problematic. Yeah. <laughs> Its leadership's very committed to this idea of a free university and viewpoint diversity. So it's just a more hospitable place. So they get, you know, for example, they gave an honorary doctorate to a guy called Tony Sewell, who he's a black Briton who authored this uh, report into race relations in Britain that was absolutely attacked by the, what I would call the sort of grievance industry, because it sort of was arguing a lot of progress has been made and institutional racism is not the right. Exactly. Let's take away that guy's black card. I mean, that's ridiculous. Exactly. So, so, so he was going due to get an honorary degree from the University of Nottingham. They re- withdrew it, and Buckingham <laughs> How do stepped you withdraw in. An honorary degree, like, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, okay. Um, I guess weirder things have happened. So you're going to be leading something called the Center for Heterodox Social Science. Let me ask you a question about that. I love all the words in that sentence. I love centers. I love heterodoxness. I, love, you know, <laughs> social science. Who can argue with that? But by analogy, do you remember there was this, maybe it's still around, I don't know, social media platform called Gab. And I guess it's similar to this thing that everybody said they were going to use, but no one used Mastodon, where you create this space that's like a free speech space. But like, who are the people who are preferentially attracted to a place where you can say absolutely anything? It's often, or at least disproportionately, people with really crazy things to say. (laughs) Hardcore communists fascists, Holocaust denial, proponents of weird and justly illegal sexual practices. (laughs) Yes. And that doesn't mean that reflects the intent of the people setting up that space. But, you know, if you set up a space in Toronto in a park and said, in this park, you can say absolutely anything you want, you would not get people saying, well, here's my 17 point plan for Senate reform. (laughs) <laughs> you would get people saying horrible, horrible things. How do you prevent the Center for Heterodox Social Science from becoming a center for super crazy people saying weird things? Yeah, great question. I mean, there's a couple of things. One is this is this is a university where, you know, you have to pay a fee to get in and it's sort of the barriers to entry are, are much, much greater. First of all, it's a research center. That's the first thing. So it's not necessarily something that people just rush in and join. Uh, so it's partly about charting a, a research direction. I sort of say I'm going between the extremely controversial and the progressive monoculture with its red lines in academia. So I'm not going to be doing ethics of pedophilia and race and IQ and all these sorts of very extreme things that are in the Journal of Controversial Ideas. But equally, I don't want to be sort of limited by the kinds of uh, things that are going on in the mainstream. The problem is if you're in an environment where it isn't possible to publish or get published if you are going against the consensus, then you're not going to get a a science that reflects the truth. You're going to get a distortion of the truth. And so partly the aim here is to try and rebalance on some of these questions where there is an orthodoxy to try and introduce a more heterodox set of arguments, arguments which could be wrong, but actually we're going to inject those arguments into the conversation and and so try and sort of have the balance that'll get us closer to the actual truth or which should be the telos of academia. So that's the sort of mission of this center. I don't think, you know, ultimately probably I would have discretion over what is being pursued, but it's not as though there are no boundaries to 
any kind of speech uh, at Buckingham, for example, it would be, you know, there would certainly be resistance if somebody, and, and indeed there was an individual who kind of stepped over the line and, and was uh, actually had to leave his position at a number of years ago. Yeah, I'm just going to pass over the fact that you said telos like it's a, a normal thing. <laughs> Quillette, as a media outlet, has gone through this a little bit because, as, as you know, we became popular because we wanted people to be able to speak freely. But at the same time, you always have to set guardrails. Like you can't say, oh, great, finally, we can talk about, you know, that moon landing that never happened. There, there has to be some guardrails. And for us, the rubber really hit the road during the pandemic because you started to get people who, like a lot of people, became radicalized during the pandemic and started to embrace baseless theories about vaccines and not just about like legitimate areas of argument like, you know, do lockdowns work? How effective are masks? Should the AstraZeneca vaccine be used on the elderly, given some of the rare but still serious blood clot issues? We're talking people with much more sweeping theories about Bill Gates spying on people through this. I actually would get a sense of comfort from Bill Gates spying. Like <laughs> I've never had any objection to Bill Gates's surveillance efforts. And, and we had to make decisions. Until that time, I think it had been very easy for us to say, this is where free thought lives. This is where, you know, you can say anything you want. And then this is the first time there was this concrete issue where people were like, great, I'm going to talk about how 10 million people are going to die from vaccine side effects because of these unreported issues that were exposed by some podiatrist in Romania. And I say, no, no, we're not publishing that because that's nonsense. And it's like, oh, look at the hypocrites of Quillette, the gatekeepers of Quillette. You are now a gatekeeper because you're leading the Center for Heterodox Social Science. So you're going to get people who you recognize from your Twitter mentions saying, I'm so glad there's finally an ideological ally in place at a respectable university so that you can help me with my groundbreaking research into fill in the blank. And have you thought about what you're going to say to those people? So the other thing, of course, is it's not, we're not a publication that is soliciting manuscripts. And so it's it's a bit easier to say, well, with our very scarce resources, where are we going to put these scarce resources? It's a different, it's a much narrower problem in, in a way than what, what you face where you're getting all comers coming in. The thing is, there's just so much to do between the crazy stuff and what exists on campus. It's a bit like Quillette and what you publish. I could almost see this as, as being a sort of academic version of that or, or of what Heterodox Academy, which is to some degree where we're getting the name from, what they're doing. I mean, it's it's just that there's so much that is, without even getting into the, the the extreme stuff, I mean, there is just so much that hasn't been studied, hasn't been published for fear of falling afoul of the orthodoxy that needs to be published. So there's a huge pent-up demand just for sanity. And if, if we can provide that, I think we're going to be doing a service. Of course, we don't have the capacity to publish the way Quillette does, and it'll be a smaller enterprise for some time. But the, the idea is to try and at least build up a a knowledge base that is trying to rebalance in some of these areas. And, and the study of wokeness, I mean, I have this new course on Woke 15 Week. That's an example of where academia just doesn't want to know, but this is a huge issue. It's being talked about in the press. It's affecting elections. And yet there are a lot of areas like that that academia isn't touching because they're seen as too hot to handle. Let's talk a little bit about the word wokeness, because that word went as you know, from a positive term a couple of years ago, used unironically to describe somebody who 
as if in a religious epiphany, the scales dropped from their eyes and they beheld the good news delivered by social justice Jesus. And then it very quickly became a term of abuse. But then there's kind of a third phase where it's like, okay, woke has become a term of abuse. When I use it, I'm sort of announcing my participation in this culture war thing. And so now like I've stopped saying woke, and I'm sure I still use it on Twitter because it's only four characters. So it, it fits nice. But you know, if I'm talking to somebody like you who uses terms like telos, I will say <laughs> illiberal progressivism, or I will say race conscious policymaking. Did you have to think long and hard about whether you wanted to actually use the word woke in your official branding? Yeah, I did. But I'm more and more convinced that this is the word that is going to emerge as the empirical standard word for this. And so, so you can, Yasha Monk's recent, recent book uses the term identity synthesis, which, you know, I... we had him on the podcast. My first question to Yasha was, did you burst into your publisher's office and say, stop the presses? You want to sell books? <laughs> Get this identity synthesis. And then his publishers very smartly wanted nothing to do with that on the cover. So they called it, I think, the identity trap, which is a much more marketing friendly term. But I mean, thank God there's this intermediary of cynical marketers in between you academics and the reading public or no one would read your books. Exactly. I, I mean, so so I think identity synthesis is even though I love Yasha's book and I, you know, I'm reviewing it now, but it's a good book. It's a great book. But I think that's a terrible term. And but I think you can there are other plenty of other terms too. Lukianoff and Schlotz recent book uses just uses cancer culture. I think Jonathan Rausch uses something similar. Then you've got others who use progressive illiberalism. And, and I, the thing about it is I actually, a more parsimonious Occam's razor word to use is woke. If you define it as I do, which is just as the making sacred of historically marginalized race, gender, and sexual identity groups. And, and from that flows a number of things. So one is if you uh, are seen to have offended even a hypothetically most sensitive member of one of these groups, then you've committed blasphemy and therefore can be canceled. If you criticize those who speak on behalf of these groups, and so-called anti-racists or trans activists, for example, then you are also a blasphemer profaning the sacred. Now, the other word that I've used sometimes is cultural socialist. The, the idea here is that you have to have perfect equality amongst identity groups, but also you have to have perfect emotional harm protection for those identity groups. And so that is a kind of two consistent set of beliefs. It's it's a bit like taking what Jonathan Haidt calls the equality and care harm moral foundations and cranking them up to 100. Um, so it is a kind of extremism, but I do think woke works as a sort of the religious basis for this cultural socialist worldview. So I don't know how academic life works, but when you made the announcement that you were leaving your university, did they like get a cake and on Friday at five, everyone got little plastic forks and it's a good luck, Eric. <laughs> like, like what happened? How, how does it work when you leave a university? Well, well, don't forget that I. this is where, you know, I've been through several years of controversy now and, and these cancellation attempts. And what that actually does is, so I've known my colleagues, many of them, for as up to 20 years, I've been at the institution. And these were good relationships. But of course, when you have all that controversy, it sort of pollutes those relationships, introduces some awkwardness. And so I just think a full-on sort of leaving due would have been a bit awkward. So what it was was just smaller groups of people, you know, going out for dinner, that kind of thing. So it wasn't really an official leaving due. Now, 
to be fair, in this sort of restructuring, there were a number of people who were leaving the department. So there wasn't a great big party for everybody. So I wasn't necessarily singled out. But yeah, I mean, it's kind of too bad because I have a lot of good memories there. But I felt it was time to move on if I was ever going to do this. So no cake? (laughs) Unfortunately not, John. I mean, I think the best I had was maybe a a couple of rounds at a local uh, greasy spoon. Oh, well, that sounds a lot like our meeting. (laughs) Yeah, I I love when I can bring things back to the beginning. It makes me feel like a writer. Yeah, I mean, I might, uh, who knows? I don't know if you'll be at this Quillette Social in London. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, then I'll have a chance. Oh, what an amazing segue to promote this incredible event we're going to be having. I wasn't going to mention it, but since you brought it up. If you are in London and you're listening to this or you're London adjacent or you're planning a trip to London, Quillette is going to be holding something. We call it the Quillette Social. Uh, It's going to be on Friday, November 3rd. Quillette Social kind of sounds like a, a Victorian picnic or something like that. But it's basically a party. There's a few speeches. I'll be speaking at this one, but not for long. Don't worry. <laughs> We've recently had amazing events in New Orleans back in January, which was fantastic. We did one in Toronto a little while back, which was was also a lot of fun. <laughs> well, I noticed, too, it's at the Unheard Club. Unheard has a restaurant now? Yeah. I think Quillette's going to need to sort of maybe, I don't know where it would be, maybe in Australia, but they'll need to open up a space. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to get, I'm going to work on some recipes. <laughs> Eric? Thanks so much for being on the Quillette Podcast, and uh, good luck in your new venture. Thanks, John, and it'll be uh, nice to meet again after all these years. By the way, you do so many things online and intellectually. I always ask guests, if people want to know more about what you're doing, is there a one-stop URL you can give them? My website is snaps.net, S-N-E-P-S dot net, and you can find all the info there. Good stuff. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, John. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette Podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 